Good morning. This Sunday begins our series in the book of Hebrews, titled Hope and Faith. As I pursue research within my own educational doctoral studies, I continue to be amazed and challenged by the depth of research within God's own word, how each book is intertwined with the other 65, how words penned by one writer highlight and underscore the message of another hundreds of years later. This depth of research is what we find in the book of Hebrews. It's a looking back and a looking forward in order to make sense of the present. M. R. Dihan, who published a book on Hebrews in 1959, and one from whom I am learning so much, writes this about the context of this letter written to Hebrew Christians. He says the epistle was addressed to believers in the early apostolic church, who were almost entirely converts from Judaism, who had been saved out of a religion of law works, based on a corrupted, distorted system of superstition and tradition as taught by the apostate priesthood, and Pharisees of that day. To take a firm, uncompromising stand for the truth of the gospel was for them not an easy matter. It meant giving up friends, parting with dear ones, breaking with their old religious system, and walking the lonely path of separation with Christ and a little company of people who were followers of the despised Nazarene. It meant giving up things they had held dear and invoking the ridicule of the religious elite of that day, and even inviting persecution. These Hebrew Christians needed to be challenged and encouraged, just as we do today. They needed to see the God of the past in order to stand firm in their present in light of a future hope. They needed to see with the eyes of their hearts that Jesus Christ, the same God of the Old Testament, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as we read in Hebrews 13.8. As we take a very brief look at the first two chapters, today of Hebrews, the following themes begin to emerge. First, we see the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is as exalted creator, sustainer, finisher, and savior, the God who never changes. And in light of who he is, we begin to see who we are, our own identity as humankind, the worth with which he crowns us, our purpose, our calling. And then thirdly, we begin to see our hope, he tasted death, death for everyone, we read in chapter 2, verse 9. He frees us from the fear that enslaves, we read in 2.15. He gets us, our weariness, our frustration and brokenness, our loneliness, our weakness. And the reason he gets us is because he became like us, we read in 2.17. The first two chapters of Hebrews remind me of the song often heard at Christmas, how many kings? It goes like this, the chorus. How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. Who is this one who would do that for me? Hebrews chapter 1 begins to explain. We read in verses 2 and 3, In these final days he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And then as we continue further into chapter 1, 
We read that the Son is the one whose throne endures forever and ever, the one who loves justice and hates evil, the one who laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with his hands, the one who is, has been, and will be always the same. It is this exalted one who calls us to a high purpose, as we read in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And these verses actually come from a psalm. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. The exalted one crowns us, his creation, with glory and honor. He gave us authority, although we forfeited it in the garden. But one day that authority will be restored. We do have a high calling. And because of this high calling, we are called to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We read this in Philippians and Ephesians. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, we're challenged further in this high calling to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And then verse 3 asks us, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Hebrews presents us with a choice in regards to our high calling. The choice is we can drift away from our high calling or we can stay anchored to it. We can become complacent in our high calling or we can flourish in it. We can neglect and ignore our high calling or we can invest in it and gain. Again, I'm going to quote M. R. Dahan. He explains it so well. He writes, almost every servant of God whom God has used in any degree has had two calls. One, to come to him for salvation, and another to yield his life in full surrender to his will. This is the life more abundantly. I ask myself, what does this life more abundantly mean practically? What does that mean to not drift away as Hebrews challenges us? To not neglect our great salvation. It means, at least in part, that I allow his power to work in me. As Paul heard the Lord say, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. This abundant life, this not neglecting my great salvation, means I allow the light of Jesus Christ to shine through the cracks that I wish in my pride I could hide. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7, God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. This abundant living, this not neglecting our great salvation, not drifting away from it, means that I allow God the freedom to work in me and I'm sensitive to his promptings. Paul told the Philippian believers, work hard, not for your salvation, that's already secured, but work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. 
Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Living that abundant life, not drifting, not neglecting that great salvation, means I am holding firmly to Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. I'm holding firmly to his words, which are truth. Living that abundant life, not drifting, not neglecting that great salvation, means I run to the one who can help. Hebrews 2.18 It means I walk by faith. Hebrews 11 It means I strip off every weight that, shlo- that slows me down, especially the sin that so easily trips me up. Hebrews 12.1 It means that I keep my eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 It means I remain in him and his words remain in me. John 14, 5 and 7. As I remain in fellowship with Christ, as 1 John 2, 28 challenges me to do, as I remain in fellowship with him, it's then that I can be full of courage, knowing that I will not shrink back from him in shame when he comes back for his kids. You know, I find myself living so much in the moment, sometimes, often, that I, like the Hebrews, need to be reminded that there's a future coming and that what I choose to do now with this great salvation that I have, what I choose to do now in regards to abundant living will affect the future that awaits me. He really is coming back. I really will appear before him. And in that assurance... I need to remind myself that I'm going to be rewarded based on my choices or I'm going to feel a suffering, a loss. There's only one foundation in this great salvation that Hebrews reminds us not to neglect, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. He's given me a high calling. He's given us a high calling, and embedded in that high calling is a choice to pursue that high calling, to lean on him in that pursuit, and to gain or to become complacent in that calling, to go it on my own, to neglect it, and ultimately to suffer loss, to lose. Paul puts it this way, no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation, however, may use a variety of materials, some that will last and some that will not. Those materials include gold, silver, jewels, things that will last, or wood, hay, and straw. On the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. And that choice to gain or to lose is we iterated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which says, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Hebrews reminds us, and I'm going to quote M.R. Dahan again, that salvation is far more than than being delivered from hell and going to heaven when we die. 
Rather, there are two possibilities of Christian experience. One is to have salvation, period. And the other is to have salvation plus. One is to be just saved by grace. The other is to know a life of power, victory, joy, service, and fruitfulness, and a reward at the end of the, day, of the way. And it all depends on what we do with God's gift of salvation. We can develop it or neglect it. I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. These verses to me wrap up in one neat little succinct package the thoughts that we've been discussing today. And these verses have become my prayer for myself, my family, Elam Chapel, all of us at Elam Chapel, and the Canadian Church. Peter says, be on guard so that you're not carried away, so that you don't lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that be our ambition and our high calling, our pursuit.